All right. Are we, are we live? We are now. All right. So welcome back to Cutler Cast. What is it? 76? 76. Okay. 76. And we have uh, a very special guest on Tommy Vex, who just recently came to Las Vegas and yeah. a figurehead in many, many uh, different arenas. Yeah. A talking head, <laughs> a figurehead. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, man, we're happy to have you on, and uh, thanks for coming out today. I know uh, you guys got to catch up a little bit, and you know we were just kind of briefly talking about things. But um, you know, you've been you know, you've been so apparent, and uh, you know, in, in a lot of media and everything else, and uh, you know, everyone appreciates your work so much. I want to get into uh, you know, kind of a little bit deeper and learn a little more about your background. I know there's a lot of stories from yeah, the sounds yeah. of it. And, uh, yeah, we got stories. I mean, you know. You know, you live long enough, and you got some stories to tell. It, we, we were just talking about, you know, I was I was witnessing, uh, you know, through social media, and it's crazy how that's kind of become the thing now. Um, one of your tours that you you did, you know, a couple of years ago, and we were talking about you were talking about being nervous, and I'm like, I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, it still happens, you know. I mean, in that that particular situation was in 2017. I I wound up filling in for a five finger death punch a singer um so he could go you know he was he was having some substance abuse problems and you know obviously widely publicized so he went and he he went and did what he needed to do and he took care of himself and like by the grace of god he was, was that ivan or yeah, yeah, he's, ivan, he's yeah. five years sober now yeah it's like you know so he he i mean i commend them for doing the opposite of what most people in the music industry do is usually they just keep pushing they're like, just go up and make the money, and then, you know, people never get time to recover. And so, you know, I got put in a position where um, they asked me to fill in, and it was terrifying. You know, and I'd been in, you know, punk bands and metal bands and thrash bands. and hard, uh, I've been playing shows since I was 14 at CBGB's in New York. But it's a little, it's a little bit different, sorry. I never used a microphone before. It's a, and it's a little bit different when it's, you know, you walk on stage in Vienna and there's 180,000 people and you're like, holy. Like Have you ever a, done a big show like that until that point? That was the biggest thing that ever happened, right? And I had done, I, I did with my former band um, Soundwave Festival in Australia. But even at the stage we were at, we were, you know, Incubus was headlining. We were on the metal stage, probably like six, 7,000 people maybe. So this is like beyond. So like you went from small to just as big as it gets. Yeah, like, that. like just like that. And so, uh, yeah, and I was like, we, you know, we were talking about Lincoln Park before this, and like I, I, after one of the shows, we were, you know, we went on right before Lincoln Park in Spain, and I was just in this kind of weird state of shock because on one hand, like my friend, I'm worried that if he's going to be okay, and then I'm, you know, a perfectionist, and I'm like, am I doing? a good job mm -hmm. and what am I doing here? And is this really happening? <laughs> right. I was like 11 years sober at the time. Oh no, I was no nine years sober at the time when that happened, when all that was going down and it was just very surreal. And I'm in the airport, the private airport in Spain and Chester Bennington's like, Hey man, you okay? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, oh my god! Like, don't you know? So, so you mentioned, like, so you stupid. mentioned sober. So you have nothing to offset. Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah, if yeah. Some people would numb it with something, yeah. right? Have a shot or whatever, right? Yeah, like some, like you know, for me, so, like I think some people will they'll do a shot or they'll smoke weed or yeah. or after the show they'll like you know take it down a notch. And so it's just like, 
it's like raw nerves and like this surreal experience of, you know, for my entire life since I was 15 years old, I was like, I want to, you know, I saw Pantera and I was like, I'm going to do that. You know, and then I saw Metallica and I saw Corn, and I was like, I need to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. You know, and I'm, I'm like, oh, and then it's happening 20 something years later. And I'm like, sounds like the boss. So what's going through my head right now is the first time you went and performed in front of hundreds of thousands of people. What did you do backstage before your very first, first time you did it? I did. Oh, so, you know, the universe was conspiring in my favor that day. And I walked backstage when I got the, you know, I woke up that morning and I was traveling with the tour, um, just kind of being a support system until a decision was made that I had to switch. And so I was not psychologically prepared for that to happen. And I ran into uh, my buddy in Steel Panther. And so I used to be the security guard at the key club when Steel Panther <laughs> yeah. played. And I've known him forever. And he's also sober. And I was like, bro, I'm freaking out. He's like, bro, what are you even doing here? And I was like, bro, I'm singing tonight. He's like, well, who? I was like, I'm going on after you. He's like, and he's like, he knew exactly what that meant. He was like, oh my God. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, he's like, we need to have a meeting. I was like, yes so they call, like got all the other sober sober guys that were backstage and they we ran in a room and like everybody prayed for me and i was like oh my god if this is what i'm supposed to do like help me please give me you know and then and one of the prayers i always do before i go on stage from pretty much there on out is please make help me to make this not about me and let me say the thing that needs to be said for the one person to hear. It's pretty selfless, actually, you know. It's very powerful, too. Yeah. Well, it's the... It's the message, huh? Yeah, that's... I, I, I survived a lot of things, like, you know, I got murdered. And so I said to God, even when I was, you know, dying, I was like, please, not today. You know, and so we, we can get into all that. But so it's like I, I kind of... I'm on borrowed time, you know, like it's, it's, I don't know. Sometimes I tell this, these stories and I'm like, I can't believe this even happened to me. Right. Cause I'm just, it brings so, you back. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's like the first time, you know, you got on stage versus like the first time you, you know, you arrived, right. Like Jay Cutler has arrived yeah. and those moments of where you, the kid, that, that kid that walked in the gym the first day becomes a, a, world champion and like the meter right like when when i met you at golds a couple of years ago i was the same it was the same thing that happened when i saw chester bennington i was like oh like i was surprised i was actually <laughs> I, super I was surprised that you oh, actually oh, yeah. kind of knew because you know i didn't know like you were really in that in deep with the fitness thing and i mean obviously you worked out right but well the what I was, I, thought I was the, obese. I thought the same thing, though. I'm yeah. like, how does this guy know who I am, you know? Because obviously you were a figurehead also. Well, no. I mean, it, it's, well, to me, like, what bodybuilding and, and fitness represented to me was something untangible always, right? So when I was a kid, I was like, I was fat. I was awkward. I got abused. I was angry, you know? So I fit right into the music stuff. But then... You know, I got into drugs and alcohol at, a, at an early age. Like, I started drinking and using at 12. 
And so by the time I was 20, you know, I was already like full blown using and, and then I got fat, you know, I lost a bunch of weight from doing drugs and I stopped doing those drugs. And then I just drank and ate bad food. And then I got really, really fat. And, you know, I was like a fat construction worker <laughs> and, you know, I looked in the mirror, I still was playing shows. And I remember uh, my girlfriend had took pictures of me at a show that we did at the limelight in New York city. And I was like, disgusted with myself you saw the pictures and i was out of breath and i was like i couldn't play and i was just like never again how do you get introduced to like that side that young i mean you're talking about drinking at 12 like how do you get a hold of like what did you have an influence like did you have a family member or like no i mean my for the like so there was a lot of things that contributed to this i was adopted my twin brother and i were abandoned by our birth mother and then my parents that adopted me were very, you know, well-meaning Christian people. My dad was a Vietnam veteran with very severe PTSD. He had been blown up. He got hit by a mortar, so he took shrapnel. And then he had been shot three times in a firefight. And so he eventually was, you know, he got, he got sent home and he served his time. But he, he went to the bottle and then he married my mother. And my mother was like, you have to get sober and then they, he got sober. So my dad was sober for a long time, for almost the first 13 years of my life. And my brother had, was, by the time he was 10, he started going into mental institutions, right? So he was really doing bizarre, like scary things, like the f- lighting fires. We were like, oh, you know, we we're like playing with matches and burning things. And where is this happening? Where This is in Brooklyn, okay. in Brooklyn, New, New York. York. Okay. And then, you know, it would be like, you know, my friends would be like, oh, your brother, like, killed a dog, or, like, you know, like, what? And he he always had, like, two personalities. He would act one way, like, around my friends and everything outside, but then in, in the house, he was, like, kind of, like, very sadistic. And so he, you know, he wound up assaulting my mother multiple times, assaulting me, assaulting my sister while my father was working two or three jobs, and then me and my brother would fight because I was protecting my mom, and, like, that my dad would be mad at me. And, you know, it was just, it caused, it basically broke the house apart. And while my brother was institutionalized, my father had one drink and that was it. And within about a year, my mom had to take my sister and leave. And my brother got out of the, uh, he was out of, he was, did like six months straight in the last institution. And, uh, and that was it. And the family was fractured. And so, it didn't really, I was always an A student, you know, I, I always, even though I was weird and awkward, and then I think I lost my dad, and I lost respect for him, and then I just started hanging out on the street, and it was, you know, and the household became an unsafe place, and being out there in a group of guys was safer than being alone in that scenario. Mm-hmm. And so I got until I got mixed up in a lot of dumb stuff, you know, and I think that happens to a lot. I think, you know, there's not enough conversation uh, about the, the dangers of fatherless homes and boys need a, a male role models, you know. And even in my adult life, like when I wound up getting sober, I reformatted my father figures with a sponsor, right? And I, and I gravitate towards people of excellence because I'm a poser, right? I want to be that, you know? So when I I have like, you know, if I have real estate questions, I hit up uncle Jack. And if I have, 
you know, like legal trouble, I'll, I'll call Irwin. And, you know, I just got all these guys that I was blessed to, to that came around me when I was 27 and were like, hey, we're not going to, and I was homeless. I was a homeless drug addict. And they were like, we're not going to quit on you. And no one had ever not quit on me before. So, you know, so it, the absence of that male role model led me to, you know, to all kinds of things, selling drugs, messing with the wrong people, getting involved in violence, being a victim of violence. I'd been, you know, stabbed, robbed at gunpoint. I've been out in shootouts, like in bars. Not that I was, I wasn't firing, but you know, I was in these places where these things happened and, and it was, you know, until I got sober and then also went to therapy, I think about two years into sobriety, it was like, going to therapy and talking about this stuff and then having it explained back to me that this is not normal right we know as children what we are what we experience we normalize and so you know i went into the world as a man in my 20s with the emotional capacity of like probably a 14 or 15 year old and i think a lot of people who start drinking and using at a young age it kind of halts our emotional it's, development yeah, it basically uh you were trapped in that space for such a long time you really didn't face reality right mm -hmm. what yeah and then also your perception of reality is like it's totally out of proportion right it's hard to take it, well you you need the the thing about masculinity is the masculine dem, is is the balance that demands personal accountability right like you can't be that without personal accountability to yourself, right? You can't become what you've accomplished. You can't do what I've accomplished without personal accountability. And what happens is that that's taught. So a young man who's, got, who's lost with a lot of energy and wants to do a lot of things, if they don't understand that it's completely on them to create discipline, right? And also all the other attributes to forgive and to have kindness. These are the things that happen for a man. When you're a boy, you're, you know, you're spiteful. It's like Goonies, you know, the mm -hmm. kid in the well. Yeah, he's yeah. like, this is my wish, and it didn't come true. And he's like, no, I'm taking everything. Yeah. And there are men in their adult lives who are still operating in, this, uh, in a childish state of scarcity because they weren't taught, right? There was no example. And so a lot of the things that I experienced, by the time I was getting sober, I was a poor me guy right? Pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. And so, you know, it wasn't until I finally hit rock bottom and it took me, you know, it took me losing a child. It took me, you know, becoming homeless. Uh, it took me a couple ODs, you know, I didn't get the memo the first time. And then, uh, and then it hit and then, you know, it hit. So I had had some success. I had signed some record deals. I traveled all over the world. I thought that if I left Brooklyn that I was going to be okay because I blamed my surroundings because I didn't blame myself. I took myself with me. And then it never lasts that long. You can go really, you can go to a certain limit on self-propulsion, especially when you're younger. But it's not, there's no, you can't maintain that forever. You can't, we're not meant, human beings are not meant to just be solitary animals. You can't do everything alone. And some people try to, and then they end up alone. And then you went, you know, some people end up 80 years old and they're like alone. 
because they didn't want to pack into the stream of life. So those are like, those are some of the major things to take away. And like I don't, you know, I almost got killed when I was a kid. You know, that did not it did not wake me up. You know, it really wasn't until I loved something more than myself, like which was my son, and then losing that. It was so devastating because I just never, I hadn't felt real love for anything, or you know what I mean, and um, it it hit made me hit rock bottom, and then I, it put me in a position for the narrative to change, you know. So, where did you? <clears throat> at what point during all of this did did uh, either a record label or something come to you that changed? where you're not homeless, you're not, where you actually started making it. I actually wanted to know how you, like, well, how you found music and what yeah. that did for you. Like, what age did you, and what, who was, like, do you remember exactly, like, what music it was or yeah, yeah. artist or? Yeah, I mean, the, the two things I did the, the longest was, you know, I was said when I got sober, I was like, I've been listening to this, I've been playing music and drinking for about this two weeks apart for, like, most of my life. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that, you know, I really liked, my dad loved the Beatles. So I'm like, oh, like I, he listened to music. My father would come home from his second job and just, it was like when dad came home from work, he's got, he wants to take a bath and he would take a bath and read the Bible. And I would always be like, what is he, you know, he's probably reading the Bible because of all that he had to deal with all day, literally this, yeah. you know what I mean? He was like doing a janitor job during the day in, in the public school system in the hood and then going and working another one at night in a different location. And, you know, it's, and he's like, you know, this is a guy who adopted three kids with his wife and like, they couldn't have kids of their own. He's, you know, sober and trying to, trying to break the family cycle because his father left him. And he would play his mixtapes and he'd have all this cool music. So that started that. And then I like grunge. And then that wasn't really heavy enough. And then I heard Pantera. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> and I was like, dude, we got to go to, I'm like, can I borrow like $8? Yeah. You know, it's like, it, why? <laughs> you know, because we don't have $8. <laughs> and I was like, all right, fine, I'll get a job. And like, you know, I got it. I, I remember I, I, to pay for concert tickets and CDs, I worked as a stock boy in Brooklyn at this bo at this place called uh, what was it called? Not Papa Charlie's. Uh, it was I can't remember. I and I had these bosses who were like a couple, and they were both they were both drunk, and that's how I started getting booze because. Would you steal it or did they yeah, give it to you? No, we would put we would take the trash out, and we would put. I, we would put ice in a yeah. garbage bag and put some of the beers there yeah. <laughs> and then throw them in the trash and then wait in the baseball field across the street from the from the, the store and then hop in the dumpster after they locked up at night and then grab the bag with the red rubber band and go in the in the park. <laughs> I told this one, and we would listen to like Black Sabbath and Pantera and Ozzy Osbourne, and I remember I was telling this story at a, a, sober, a sober function, and I looked down. And I'm about to say Ozzy Osbourne, and he's sitting right in front of me. I was like, and other uh, artists of that nature. And everyone's new, because I had started the O. I was like, yeah. you know, everyone's laughing. I was like, he's like, oh, you know. So that's how it started. And then, uh, you know, then I, we started playing shows. And 
we were little scam artists. You know, we'd, we'd have the bass player's dad book us at CBGB's. And so they would be like, yeah, you guys can come do audition night on Tuesday. And we're like, oh, we got school. Like, all right, we'll steal Steve's mom's car. And, <laughs> and we'll steal Mike's mom's credit card. And we'll get equipment. And we'll go down there. And then we'll return the next day. And then we'll be back in time for school. Nobody will know where we're even going. Yeah. We got caught doing everything. Like, like well, fuck are you guys at? There's no cell phones. There's no. We didn't even have pages. We were the poor kids. And um, yeah, we'd show up to the venue, and they'd be like, "You guys aren't even old enough to be That's here." That's passionate, though, there, man. Yeah. That's like, yeah. And then we, <laughs> and then they would be, you know, and we were in this. I was with the same guys for ten years. We all grew up together, and they kept me out of a lot of trouble because I didn't want to do stuff to go to jail. I wasn't willing to, you know, when, when gangster rap was at a tight and everybody was like, really, everyone thought they were Tony Montana and <laughs> and Tony Soprano, you know what I mean? And, and Biggie Smalls, I was like, yeah, but I don't want to, we got, we got a show. So you guys go and do that. And I'm a, I'm not going to go to that, you know? And then we, the other hustle was, this was so ridiculous. So, and Mike, if Mike's mom ever sees this, I'm sorry, <laughs> Suzanne. <laughs> But this was my plan, and I did this. I'm sorry. So we're like, you know, we were like, we want to play this show. And there's a battle of the bands to play with this with some big band, right? It might have been Biohazard, whatever. Um, and we're like, I know what to do. I'm like, we need we need a credit card. And they're like, okay. I was like, we'll steal Mike's mom's credit card. And he's like, and we'll we'll order a school bus, and then we'll charge people for a ride to the show. And they were like, and, you know, the guys were like, this is a fucking great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, and we all went to different high schools. I wound up dropping out of high school when I was 17. But so we all went to different schools. So I was like, all right, boys, I'm going to tell the promoter, I'm going to guarantee we sell 100 tickets because nobody will sell 100 tickets. And they're like, how are we going to do that? I was like, bro, I got this. So... <laughs> I tell, I lie to the guy. I'm like, yeah, we'll, I'm like, and, and any of that we don't sell, like, we'll just buy. He's like, who is this kid? And they're like, all right, cool. He's like, you sell a hundred tickets, you got the show. So what we wound up doing is we ordered the bus for 150 bucks. We got the tickets where each ticket we, they, they were selling for five bucks. So we, we owed the club $2 per person. So they wanted 200 bucks. And I was like, we'll, we'll sell a cup, we'll get a keg, and we'll put a keg on the bus, and we'll sell the ticket to get in, and we'll sell the ride on the bus and the keg for 15 bucks. And everyone's like, bro, this is genius. He's like, well, nobody's got 15 bucks. I'm like, we got two months till the show, boys. Start collecting. Dude, this thing... <laughs> You were like the ultimate entrepreneur at a young age. Uh, yeah, but we, it was kind of genius to a certain degree. Anything to make the show happen. Yeah, and right. He, like, he actually said scam, but it's actually pretty it's entrepreneur. It's pretty smart. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. So, so we pulled it. So we did the first one. So we're like going, you know, we're like, yo, bro, we're doing a show. We're, we're doing a show in the city with this band, and it's a battle of the bands, and you know, everyone's like, all right, cool, like. And then the day, the you know, the day that we do this, we had the bus shows up at seven o'clock in front of a in front of a school because we couldn't have it go in front of anybody's parents' house, and we got my friend's alcoholic uncle to buy us the the beer, 
and he just wanted to go ride on the bus and get drunk. So, so we got his, we, his name was Uncle. Really? <laughs> and he was like, he had just gone Everyone through a has divorce. An uncle like that. Yeah, his wife had just left him and he was like in that mess phase. Like he was hanging out with teenage kids. He was like 24. <laughs> and we're like, bro, what are we going to do? And Josh's like, I'll get Uncle Fucker to buy the beer. And we're like, boom, done. So we like literally, you know, and then the bus driver was like this, this old brother. And we start showing up and then, you know, Uncle is like, you know, he puts the keg in the back, and he's like, you guys can't put that. He's like, and then the, all these kids start pouring on the bus, and we wound up selling, like, more than 200 tickets because other people were like, we'll just take the train, like the kids yeah. are allowed from the other boroughs. And, uh, you know, the guy, I went up to the guy, like, bro, look, look, bro, you got to talk to the, the bus driver so we can't go. And I was like, I got this. And I was like, I had all the money. And I was like, He's, I was like, he's like, I'm not taking you kids. Like, you guys can't be drinking and driving on my bus. He's like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, bro, here's a hundred dollars. He's like, everybody on the bus. Like, yeah. I was like, yo, this is how money works. Like, we can do anything we want as long as we have money, which is literally reality. <laughs> Same you know today. I mean? And so we went to the show, and then it wasn't even that smooth because we get there. And the promoter's like, I'm like, I give him the, the money for the tickets. I was like, we sold double the tickets. He was like, oh, okay. Bro, the bus opens up, and we we drove 35 minutes from Brooklyn, but it's a bunch of teenage lightweights. It's like 18-year-old kids. They're throwing up. They're, like, coming off the bus like, Bleh. he's like, yo, these kids can't come in the club. He's like, what is this? He's like, you said, I was, he was like, these guys are underage. They can't even drink. I was like, well, I'll just take this money back, and we could just go home. And we had the drums in the back by the keg. Like, the equipment was just sliding around the cheese bus. And I was like, we'll just go home and just get drunk. Like, we just made all this money. And he was like, put X's on all their hands. And then they let us come in, and we played, and then that was it. And how old are you at this point? I was like 16. Oh, okay, so And so we did this for the next eight years, all the time. And then the buses got nicer. And what was the name of this band? It was called, it was called Vexed. That's okay. how I got the name. So I was in the band, and there was another. There were other guys in the neighborhood named Tommy, and so I'm from Brooklyn, and everyone's like, "Yo, like, you know, Tommy Rodriguez," and they're yeah. like, "Hey, Rocky, like, you know, you know, Joey Bag of Donuts, like, you know, that was a thing." So they're like, "Yo, Tommy Vexed," and then that was my name forever. So no one knows your real name then. No, people know it, it's, but it's like I've been Tommy <laughs> Vex longer than I was my real name. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking of right now? Have you seen Billy Madison? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Chris Farley on the bus. The yeah, kids yeah, yeah. in the back. He's like, I'll turn this bus around. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of right now. Exactly. Yeah, old. It was like an Uncle Remus dude. He's like, you both better behave. Like, turn quiet down. Like, we're like, oh. You know? So, so God. So you were writing this music, or yeah, it was terrible. We were terrible. Do you have recordings we, of this? Yeah, that you should post like an old school. Some people still send me demo tapes, like, from back in the day. That like people it. have the ca the tapes. Yeah, they're like, dude, when are you going to put, like, we had a song called Et Tu Brute, which is, like, from Julius Caesar. Yeah. It's about being backstabbed. You know, like, we're, like, 16 years old. We thought we were super brilliant. And then there was another punk band that had the same name. We were, oh, we're going to change the name. <laughs> Somebody already came up with this. Like, those guys were smart. <laughs> What was the first instrument that you learned to play, or were you always singing? I was always singing. So I barely can play piano really? to this day. I'm yeah. surprised. Yeah, I barely could play. The reason why, there's multiple reasons why. I, f I got in a lot of fist fights, and I broke all my fingers, and I was like, well, I'm not playing guitar. 
you know. I was like, well, because if I play guitar, then I got to worry. Like, I can't, you know, defend myself because if I break my finger, then, like, you know, I'll just sing. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm not, I was not very bright. <laughs> In retrospect, I should have learned guitar because if I just played acoustic, I could be doing Aaron Lewis concerts, just singing the ballads of the ladies. But nope, wanted to fight. Didn't pick up the guitar. When did you, when did you get your, like, your first, like, at, like I mentioned before, like, when did you feel like, I made it. Like, because you were in the smaller punk bands. Is there a moment where... Dude, he, I still was delusional. Yeah. I still haven't made it, number one. Yeah. But in Listen, my, you performed in front of 100,000 people. You made it. Yeah. Well, I, I, did, know, three, I, I did one show at 300,000, but it doesn't matter. No, but I mean, was there a moment where you said, holy, I can make a living from this? No, so that never that thought never happened, but I'll tell you the most pathetic thing. Bro, so I got... I wound up signing a deal with uh on century media and roadrunner to be in a death metal band a melodic death metal band called divine heresy and i thought this was it and the, you know the guitar player was like bro you're gonna move in with me like we're gonna make a record like it's gonna be great and i'm like 24 get on a plane i have 300 dollars in a bag we're closing it and i'm like sick i land at lax he comes and picks me up we go, we go get a burrito and then we, you know, we drive to, uh, we drive to his house in Lincoln Heights, East LA. Mm -hmm. This is not the kind of place you want to be, <laughs> but I'm from, I'm You're from the hood. Yeah. yeah like, so I'm like, well, yeah, whatever. And like, they live on a hill and they live in a house and there's like 30 people living in this house. It's all squatters, like all punk rock people. There was a homeless guy named shoe who didn't have shoes. And he got to live in the house because his job was to clean the house. And he drank 40s. He was he was Native American. And uh, they were running dope out of the house. And they had a room. And the room, like, could overlook, like, the East L.A. city skyline. And, like, I remember putting my bags down and being like, this is it. Like, you I did it. Him. Yeah. I was like, there's a lot of weird people in this house, but I'm sure they're probably cool. Like, <laughs> like you know. And that was the beginning of the show. <laughs> like, you know, it was just like, it was just, I like, I never did meth methamphetamine before. That happened there. Like, all, all this crazy, you know, so it, it was just nuts. And then I was broke. I was I had no car. So I took, I got a job working at the Roxy and the Key Club body mm -hmm. doing, you know, security work. And I could only afford canned tuna fish and rice. And then I I had to put a, a bolt on the door of the fridge because the people who were squatting there would eat all the food. So only the people who paid rent, I would, I gave them all a key and all the, the homeless guys who were, who were like living there were, were super pissed, but it was a punk rock squat house. It was literally like how when Metallica and Anthrax would talk about living in the Lower East Side in the early eighties, I was like, we're, this is it. And I was fine with it. I was like, man, I got a job. I was like, you know, we're going to make a record. I'm like, this guy's famous. I'm like, this dude's living like, like, yeah. He, I'm like, I'm trusting this person who's got like 14 people living in his house, and who's selling dope for him and his his roommate. It was ridiculousness. But did yet yeah, did let me ask you a question? Did you think that you know coming from New York, you had to go to LA to make it? Because that's how I felt with bodybuilding, like yeah. to be seen. Yeah. But was it like that in in the music industry also? Did every, you see every uh, band that came and they played on the Sunset Strip yeah. and all that, right? Yeah, that was the mecca 
right? The Sunset Strip was the mecca of rock stardom, right? You had the Rainbow, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, like all the, you know, all the bands. You know, um, even even though you know the Whiskey and the Doors back in the day, Led Zeppelin, all these legendary artists that everybody had come through there. And I grew up in CBGB, so to, it was just the West Coast version of the culture. Right, the small dingy rock bar with the artist that hasn't been, you know, uh, discovered yet. And so, yeah, it was just it was cool. It was like, it, I I moved to LA in two thousand six, and it was like, you know, chicks were still sleeping with everybody and like showing their tits at shows, and it was like still a wild. It was like pre Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And you know, you go see bands and like chicks are like, Yeah, let's fucking do blow and fuck and you're like, What the fuck is going on? You know, I was used to like nice Italian girls, like, we got a date for like three months and then maybe I'll see a boob, you know. (laughs) 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 I gotta I gotta keep this up, appearance up, like I gotta fucking I know but what about relationships at this time? Did you even know what a relationship was? Could you be in a relationship? I mean Yeah, yeah. I mean I had I was very so I had I'm still actually friends with my ex-girlfriend like she's probably one of the best people I ever met when I was in the in the when I was in the I was getting I got my my jumped and I got beat up pretty bad and I was hospitalized because um, of like a fight with a drug dealer that I you know I should have walked away and I was like I where did this take place this was in Brooklyn okay and then so I had like gotten I got like checked I got a reality check and I was like I'm not selling drugs I don't want to get I'm not tough I'm not going out anymore. I need to like heal from this and get a job or whatever. And I ran into this girl I knew from high school who I always had a crush on but was afraid of. And um, I asked her on a date and then we started dating. And she was like a very nice girl. And um, I remember like, you know, my brother was running dope out of our house and like he had prostitutes and a, he had his friend Pookie who like broke into my room to smoke crack and we were taking her little brother to the zoo. So we drove back to my place so I could get a change of clothes because I never wanted to go home. And, the, and like, she saw what was going on and she was like, yeah, like, she was like, you know what? Just like, take your whole closet, just bring your whole closet. And then she asked her parents if I could move in with them. And yeah, and then her brother gave me a job doing construction. So I, I got legit, like I did. I like, I, I you know. They really like that family loved me and then kind of put put me back together again. But when I moved to LA you were back in the sh- Yeah, and I was I was like le- I was left to my own devices and we were a 3 hour time difference and I was so far and we lasted a few months and we went on vacation to Mexico and you know, but it was like you know, I was I was already off to the races like I I I didn't uh the thing about being an alcoholic or an addict is that nothing overrides the disease, right? And the mental obsession. And so, you know, I was, I, if I probably never left LA, if I probably stayed there and had a regular life and got married and had kids and got a job doing construction and became a foreman and whatever, I might not, I might probably never drank again. I would just been a, you know, a guy, you know? But that's not me, and I didn't do that. And when I was away from her, she, her she was such a she her she was so inherently good. I could not com, I could not bring myself to hurt her feelings and disappoint her. And so like I just like had to cut and run. And uh, I just like and then then I met the devil, you know. <laughs> so we broke up. I went about 
a year just partying and being crazy. And then I, I got into a suicide pact with my ex fiance and, um, she liked to do drugs the way I like to do drugs and she liked to party the way I did. And then we began this relationship of like just absolute everything off, the, everything on the table. You know, people are like, what do you, what kind of drugs did you do? I'm like, what do you have? <clears throat> and then that, you know, that ran its course. It was, uh, it turned super, super bad. Um, she got pregnant and then I got sober because I followed what my dad did. And, uh, ultimately her, she had a late term miscarriage because she relapsed during her pregnancy on, uh, on opioids and it, she almost died and the baby died. And, uh, and then we had a really pretty terrible breakup, never spoke to each other again. And then I was on tour singing for a band called Snot, had two overdoses, and then finally about a year of just being under the influence of cocaine, alcohol, pills, and methamphetamine for like 365 days straight, I hit rock bottom. And then I asked for help. And then I got some help. So, you know, it's one of those things that's like, Everything, you know, every, this is the thing. Everything is happening exactly the way it's supposed to at the moment that it's happening. It's just we don't always like the fact of the matter because we can't see the future. And sometimes, you know, sometimes things can be so bleak that the, the inability to see the future causes people to take themselves out. You know, and I've had those experiences too. So music could not save me from that. And uh, I had to get a bigger God. And that, that was the process. That was the beginning of the process. So, When did you start your, because <clears throat> I've seen you around the fitness industry for a while, whether it was with First Form or I've seen you with Rob Bailey. Mm. What, where, where did that journey start for you? And how did, how did you develop these relationships? Um, well, I think that, I think the alignments, you know, well, firstly, I, I, I conquered obesity, right? Like obesity ran in my family um, from a nutritional standpoint, right? Because genetically I'm not like, I'm not the same as these people. I'm adopted. But my Aunt Tina died at 52, morbid obesity. My mother, that scared my mom. My mom was obese. And then she lost 120 pounds. She, and, you know, we had no money. She would get up every day and she would walk around the park. She'd drop my sister off at school and walk for hours, and then walk, you know, a mile to the park, miles around and back. And then, you know, she got, she got, had, had enough, you know, and she didn't want to die young. And that, that had a similar effect on me. So, so losing the weight was one thing, but then also I was, you know, I, I did cardio queen where I was like, I'm just going to take, you know, Xenadrine and run. <laughs> and so, you know. And I'd work, I'd run and do cardio and play basketball. And I'm like, why don't I look like this guy? You know? (laughs) So then I joined, uh, I joined Empire Fitness and I I think that used to be owned by Lou Ferrigno. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and and it was like, I met guys there. Again, I found like other father figures, the old heads would be like, yo, kid, what are you doing? And then, you know, the culture then was, you had to be very respectful Right, you had to put the weights back. If they would not, they didn't allow you to just make a mess of the gym. Like it was a sacred men's space. There were no women in the gym either. Like when I was going, there was like maybe sometimes there'd be like two chicks, and it was somebody's girlfriend. And don't look at them because mm-hmm. her boyfriend is eight feet tall and they'll crush you. Like you know, so we, you know, you would, we would go in there to deal with stuff. 
And then we just, li- you know, we listen to music and work out, and the, the tempo of the music would set the workout. And so, you know, I think later on, I, I wound up become, becoming friends with Rob and Andy and everything, more so in my success because my platform grew and the things that I was talking about, what like what we've been talking about is very much aligned with the entrepreneurial mentality, the fitness space, you know, the, you know, the extreme ownership, right? Like, like Jocko talks about and t- coming from one place and taking what could be considered something that would crush a person's spirit and using it as fuel to build yourself into what your dreams are, right? The manifestation, um, which I believe that, you know, I, I believe in God and I believe in the spirit of the universe and I'm constantly trying to understand that more. And in my seeking of understanding that, I believe that God individually loves every single one of us so much that that's what God wants for each of us. And we are actually all meant to kind of reach our maximum potential in our life cycle, you know what I mean? So that we can live the fullest lives and inspire other people and to do so in, you know, the kind of altruistic mentality of, I don't want to call it self-help, but it's like, but yeah, the, the, those principles are very much aligned with the fitness industry and the fighting industry, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Did you become addicted though? I mean, you have this, this personality. I mean, it seems like you went full, full tilt into something, you know, like did, did the fitness thing become, you know, part of your lifestyle immediately? Um, like, did you learn like, obviously lifting weights and, you know, you, you would said you were doing cardio first. Yeah. So I, I, I followed what I just wanted to be big right and a like, lot what do you mean of, muscular or well i didn't really know the def- definitive terms like a, a part of the of being physically healthy and having a pump and having size is a deterrent to violence in a concrete jungle right so for that was really the reason that's like i got completely tatted up and i started lifting weights because don't fool me it's intimidating yeah yeah and meanwhile, like, I really was the kid who I got my kicked all the time until, you know, and it's like until you learn how to fight, you know, until, you know, one day you come home and you, and your dad's like, you you get no fight? And you're like, yeah. He's like, did you lose? You're like, mm-hmm. He's like, well, if you lose it, yeah, and when you come home, I'm going to kick your ass. And then you're like, oh. So then you learn how to not be afraid, you know. And so some of those some of those lessons, which, you know, the modern world would call toxic masculinity. They teach, they actually are extremely valuable lessons, you know? And so, um, but it's also as men, when we get past those points, we have to identify, right? I call it uncover, discover, discard. We have to take the good from those experiences and evaluate what it's like cutting the fat off a steak. Like you have to evaluate what is, what has no nutritional spiritual value to you and then allow that, to be dropped off, mm-hmm. right? Even a rocket ship, when they launch a, a rocket ship into yeah. space, the rockets that, fall off. It has yeah. to fall yeah. off in order for you to gain the trajectory mm-hmm. to break through the atmosphere. So, to me, some of that, some of the fuel, like it, you can't take it with you. I, re- I remember when I first started, when I saw you doing the show last year for FitCon, and it was it rained out. Oh yeah. And I remember Rob was telling me, and I'm like, that name sounds familiar, and I looked it up. And I saw one of the records you performed, and I was like, 
hey, I saw that guy open up for Five Finger in Green Bay. And I told you this oh, is last yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I saw him perform, and he's doing that at your show. Like, this is a sold-out arena in yeah. Wisconsin, and, I, and I, that was the first. But then I've noticed you've been around the fitness industry. And that was the first show I did. That was the first show back from COVID, and that was my, abs- that was my first show as a solo artist. Yeah. So that was after I had left Bad Wolves um, in 2021. Yeah. It was yep. packed. It was a great night. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, that was the first kind of rock concert I'd been to in a long time. And I've been friends with Chris for a while. And he's like, hey, I'm in, I'm in your back of, neck of the woods. And I remember it was cold. <laughs> and we, one of my friends and I went up there and we went and saw the show. And I was like, man, I, I know that record he performed. And then I've, like I said, I've seen you around the fitness industry since, yeah, yeah. since then I've seen you more and more. And now it's like, well, I had, on a regular basis. Well, I had gotten, I mean, basically, like, the more the band blew up, the more I was, like, my level of fitness was insufficient. Mm-hmm. And then I, I buckled down and I hired, um, actually, so Josh Brolin was a buddy of mine for a while. And he did, cab- he, he played Cable in Deadpool 2. And his trainer, uh, Justin Lovato, yeah. did an amazing job. The quad God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, it's funny because, there were time like back in the day I've gone to gold with Josh before I was platinum. And then we went and worked out about a month after zombie hit everywhere and everyone's heads were exploding. They were like, cause he had just dropped, uh, um, the, uh, the Avengers end game with Thanos. So he was the most famous villain in the MCU world at that right at that moment he was Darth Vader long way from the Goonies of that day yeah right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brad I'm pretty sure you should move that rock yeah. Brad yeah <laughs> back to the Goonies it all comes full circle yeah. and uh and people's heads were exploding they were like bro like they're like oh my god dude Thanos like oh my god the zombie guy and so I was like zombie man until people started realizing I had a name um and he introduced me to Justin Justin transformed everything I knew about fitness I didn't know anything I thought I knew all this stuff from the from the bros. You know, you know? that was his name, the Quad God. You know, you know that, right? But oh, really? I know now he's yeah. he's found him. He's doing um, more um, spiritual. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if he's we've I don't, done. We've I don't, done. I don't know. Together. I don't want to call it yoga, but I see his. He's doing a lot of. He does. He's doing breath work meditation. Yes. He does uh, like Reiki healing. I've I've yes. done sessions with him, and um, that's I've more watched en- energy. Him. Like oh yeah yeah, and he's like a super zen. He's one of the most like gentle, giant, peaceful, loving human beings. He's gonna hear this and say the quiz. He was known as the he had crazy yeah. legs. You know, he was yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, I mean his legs were huge. He was, I'm like, how do you do that? It's like I don't, you know, it's genetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, it's oh. like mine. Yeah, I started thing. doing them. I'm like, I gotta kill like these guys. I'm like, it's never gonna happen. You know. <laughs> yeah, because Josh he trained at the gym a lot. Josh was yeah, in the yeah. gym and. You know, it's always blo- kind of mind-blowing, like, when you see all these people training and, you know. But who was, like, the first, like, did you see anyone that gave you, mo- was there any role models in well, I mean, fitness? Did you look at, because, listen, so, you're a performer, right? So are you thinking you're in a tank top and you're, like, yeah, you know, yeah. you're singing and your body, like, when did you first start getting recognition and, like, who did you see that gave you inspiration other than these guys in the gym and all that? Well, the the celebrities, obviously, like, were, you know, the Stallones and the Schwarzeneggers or what we, you know what I mean? And then, you know, Ronnie Coleman. And so the more that you looked into it, and then I, I discovered you through the band Fear Factory. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember how, but I was at the bass player's house and he had, like, a fitness magazine. He's like, yo, it's my boy, Jay. Well, yeah, I don't yeah, even know yeah, if he yeah. was your boy, like yeah, you know. Yeah. He, and I was like, 
I was like, this is a human being. I'm like, how is this guy this jacked? And then, you know, you start reading the magazines, and then I was like, oh, this guy's, you know. It was like, I forgot what magazine, but you had, like, a full, like, full-on spread, like, cover and expose, and you were doing, like, it was a full workout. And I remember reading it, and I was like, ah. And I went in the gym, and I was just, like, trying to copy. But I wasn't doing it right, you know. And how old were you at this time? Because you're, like, 10 years was, younger than me. I was me, probably, so. like, 22. Okay. Yeah, something like that. I, tra- I won the Olympian. No, six was the first year I actually no, won six, it, yeah. so. Yeah, so this was probably right after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was in, uh, I'm 41, and I, had, I was in L.A., so it had to be after 06. Yeah, so just, you know, it was just one of those, it was just wild. And, um, yeah, and, and I don't know, it just kind of grew out from there, right? Like, I, I became very close with Andy Frisella from First Form, kind of over the, you know, we had very similar platform uh, topics of conversation on Instagram and social media during COVID um, for multiple reasons, right? Like, I've always been, I've been a fan of, Rage Against the Machine and, you know, Pantera or bands like Machine Head and, you know, Black Flag or, you know, all these bands that talk about politics. And, you know, I watched the sh- uh, sh- like a massive shift happen, you know, and, and I, I never really, if you read my lyrics over the past six, seven years, actually over my entire career, there's stuff in there right? My, I'm expressing my opinions and my belief systems towards humanity in those things. Um, and then in the Disobey record, it was a little bit more prevalent, right? The first Bad Wolves record, the first song is called Officer Down. And I taking a, I took a stance in it and, and the verses explained the both sides of this very complicated issue of law enforcement dealing with the African-American community and the, you know, the impoverished communities and why things you know why and at the end of the day both the the issues not being resolved and both sides are suffering and that it's not this one-sided thing and the media is blowing this out of proportion because of clickbait and all this other stuff and then you know there's other songs that i talk about you know the 13th amendment and then there's songs like the conversation on the first record which is talking about the you know the intentional division of um, uh, identity politics and the danger that that is and the precursors of socialism to communism. So all these things, you know, these are things that, you, you know, it's in the music. So when I started talking about this stuff and it was very, very tense because there was a lot of, you know, uh, the me, the, there was a lot of interest in portraying Trump as Hitler and anybody who was associated with, white supremacy and all you know basically all you know it was just nonsense to me and so you know i was people was you know doing all this stuff and i was like yeah i'm not and i'd get a lot of flack for it in the people music industry. judged you man yeah well they were like you know i had you were all white over the people media, yeah. being like you're a disgrace to your race and i'm like <laughs> i'm just like I'm like, maybe just listen to me. Just maybe listen <laughs> People to People don't want to listen, you know. Yeah, I'm like, the only black guy in the, the entire metal industry, I'm the only African-American multi-platinum selling artist in the last probably 15 years. Maybe just hold a second. Hold on and check this out. You know, it started with, the, I did a marker video, right? And the marker video got 37 million views in 48 hours. And it was like all broke loose because... I'm a researcher, and I was like, hey, 
um, you know, this BLM thing, they're, these, they're taking the money and they, it's, the company's called Act Blue and it's a political party and it's actually owned by the, you know, most people don't know, they don't want to read a whole article of a news thing, much less, they're the not going to call their buddy in the FBI and get, and pay to get a, a background check on a corporation. You know what I mean? So I, I exposed this stuff and it, like the hammer came down one after another death threats you know and you got so you you had a very public like battle with your band and yeah yeah it, and well that's where it all record label that's where it all uh, went right it all accumulated to the point of that that space and it started with you know f- and, and and you know again it's like cancel culture was like at its at its peak, peak moments yeah. and um you know our jbl uh speakers they fired me I lost my microphone endorsement from from uh, who was it? I don't even whatever. I don't even need to don't, don't give even give him credit. Yeah, yeah I don't even yeah. need to give it. wasn't sure. We like sure. Sure is okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We use sure now. Buy sure microphone. We are going. They're we not. Are, yeah, they're gonna, not racist. We're going to screen yeah. this and we're going to send it to sure. We're getting you a deal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we got money now. I could just buy their stuff. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so it just started with things like that, and then it, it just became, you know, on on when everyone posted a black square on Tuesday, the black square Tuesday thing, I posted a picture of me holding a blue line flag in an arena in front of 10,000 people, and it was everywhere. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. And it, I didn't, it was not a biased thing, right? I have family who's in law enforcement. My grandfather was a New York City, you know, detective. I was a former criminal and I understand the implications, you know, in my day, if you were, you committed crimes, you didn't fucking cry about it. You weren't a, if you sold drugs and you ran guns and you were on the street or you ran hose or any of that, if you got hemmed up, shut your mouth and do your time and shut the up. And that's just not the case anymore. Right? Like oh, I saw a lot of people who were criminals being turned into like saints because it was fulfilling a political ideological you know prophecy and then also too it's a it's a way for them to disrupt um you know this the the flow of things right so it makes people afraid people get anytime there's like drama or violence then they can capitalize on you ha- you already have everybody at home because they're scared of covid and we don't know what's going to happen and they're all watching the TV and on the internet. So everything becomes viral. And they want to control the ability to make what they want viral because they have an agenda. And so they kept doing this stuff. And so I was just like, hey, they're doing that because of this. And I'm in, I'm in Hollywood. I know how these campaigns work. I know when they want to destroy somebody or build somebody because I became famous in a week. I know, I know how it goes, you know. And so... Yeah, it just caused a lot of issues. Like people, people started getting real. Did real. you ever? Did you ever sit back and say, "Oh no, should I have not?" Or you'd not like that. Yeah. So I. The thing is, is that publicly everybody kind of pulled away from me, and I kind I got dragged, but I got dragged by a minority of people. Uh, you know, it's the media is comprised of people who went to liberal arts schools. They went to college. They've been thoroughly indoctrinated with socialist propaganda. We, we let this happen over 30 years. And it's like you can't 
undo. It's gonna. It's very hard for people who that this is their this is what they were taught. Yeah. Yeah. So while these people were going to school and their parents were paying for them to go to school to learn about racism, I lived it. I experienced both. I, I experienced good people and bad people of every kind of race and every kind of color and every kind of creed. Because you know when you're when the shit in the fan, you find out who's good and who's bad because you're in like life threatening situations or you're just trying to work or you, you know I've worked with. I've, I've worked security with guys who were, you know, I had a, a guy who was Jewish and a guy who was Asian and a guy who was black and a guy who was Hispanic. And I'm like, there's a guy with a gun in the club and we have to get him, you know, <laughs> and like, there's no race when it's the fan and there's no race in the gym and there's no race in God's kingdom. So I come from a place where, um, you know, I see that I know the truth. And so these people are not able to hear what I'm saying. Because they're, you know, while they were being engineered, I was experiencing. And so everything that I did was was the antithesis of what their engineering is. And that's why we have so many problems with the media and social media. And, you know, they don't teach the Constitution in college. They're not teaching people about their rights. They're not teaching about, you know, that how many people have died over the years and sacrificed their lives so that we are able to live in a free society. They don't understand this, the difference between a free market and a controlled market, which a common communism is a controlled market, right? It's not about the voice of the people deciding the products they're going to use. It becomes what the government allows in their deals with the corporation for the people to have. And that's what they're, they're trying to slowly convert this country generationally into accepting these ideas as as normalcy. And I have a problem with that, you know? And so to, I, I never would have thought voicing my opinions against communism would have led to the amount of people who's like people's feelings were fucking hurt, bro. It was crazy. I couldn't, I, you know, my guitar player at the time called me, he was crying. He's like, I can't believe you would do this. And I was like, did you watch the video? He's like, you, 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 you blame the Democrats. I was like, no, I didn't. I, I'm like, they took the, they own the company that takes the money. So he he's was like, listening to the media before probably. I mean, he's thoroughly indoctrinated. Yeah. You know what, you know what the hardest part about listening to people argue about politics? And I tell them this all the time. It seems like 95% of adults don't understand that we have three branches of government. They don't understand their yeah, roles. Correct. And like any, you know how many times people message me, hey, you know what so-and-so did? And I'm like, okay, where'd you see that from? I saw it on Facebook. I'm like, yeah. Do you understand? Did you, did you pass third grade social studies? You realize that person's not in control of that, right? Yeah. And the storm that we have now started yeah. in the 70s. And it's, and it's gotten worse and worse. But we're now at the moment in time where it's right in front of our face. So you can either deal with it, it's going to get worse, but you can't just blame, point the finger right now. You have to look back and see the whole system and go, yeah. how can we revamp everything? It's, it's been playing out for a long time, yeah. So I, I, I would say 30, but maybe 50 years, maybe, you know. And, 
you know, we were talking about this the other night at dinner. A lot of people don't understand, like, the president's not the king. It doesn't oh, work. Oh. Like, people are like, oh, Biden's doing this. And, you know, everyone's That's like, all you hear Trump now. is doing that. And Trump like is Like gas this. prices or this yeah. or the president's fault. Well, then, then they blame. But then, then he goes and blames it on Russia. And I'm like, we only take 3% of our oil from Russia. And you shut down the Keystone Pipeline and put 80,000 Americans out of work. And we would have been energy independent. And people are like, you can't say that. I'm like, what? what? That's just the things that happen. I'm like, what? 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 Huh? And everyone, the tribal is, it's so effective. I wish, if I had the mind that organized this divide, I would literally just put everybody back together again. Because the whoever... You know, the people who are coming up with these psychological strategies, they're basically using it for evil. But imagine what, like, it's like I always say, like, think about if Hitler took all of what he created and used it in love instead of hate and did good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What kind of a world would we be in if when men come into large amounts of power and influence, they actually honor the creator and they actually, you know, I think that's where we're going in, in this, I think, you know, as people are starting to, the veil is falling. And as people are starting to see that the system is broken, I think that humanity is going through a, tr a spiritual transformation where we've, we've kind of been in kindergarten. And, you know, when kids got to go to the next school, they always, they're crying and they're, they're scared. And they're, I don't like this change. That's not the teacher I know. And everyone's stomping their feet. But I'm like, but what's happening is, is that people are homeschooling their kids. This is not an experiment. We've homeschooled kids for the, like, there was no school. Schools, school as a concept is a couple hundred years old, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Family units, are, it's like people are rejecting modernity and then and now going back to tradition. And so you're seeing the attack on the nuclear family having a, you know, or the resistance is not one of violence but it's one of love and people are like, all right, if you're going to put sexual books and sexual things in schools, I, I, I don't even care. I'm just going to take my kids home and I'm going to raise them with the values and the beliefs that I believe. And I'm going to instill in them who they need to be, which is absolutely more valuable. You know, how did you, um, how did you get uh, connected to the former president? Oh, Trump. Yeah. Um, well, I got, I got, I wore a MAGA hat uh -huh. on Instagram and it went viral. And that was the, that was the lever, right? So that triggered the record label, the band, the media, the, the, the coup was finally secured because I was making people too much money to get to like, they Rock couldn't, the they couldn't just, they were like, we just got to get them back under control. You know, I was like Kanye Westing it. They're like, if we just get him, he's, you know, like, he's like, he's, problematic and he's not he's not staying on the script he's not staying in the script and then you know you have to understand too like if i'm talking about um you know pharmaceutical medications that i don't support and the person who owns my record label has 20 million dollars invested into that company and i'm like don't take this he's like you know <laughs> my investments i was like you're not taking it. he's like it doesn't matter it's it's no like I'm like, it's immoral. He's like, there are no morals. It's the music industry. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to get out of here. You know? It's kind of true. So it's, it's like in my naivety, I'm like, I have this platform and I have to ex express the truth. 
right? I have to tell people what's going on. Like I'm having conversations with Dr. Nina Simone and Dr. Rashid Buttar and Robert Malone way before Joe Rogan. And I'm like, every, I'm like, this isn't, it's a lie. Like, you know, I started saying all this stuff and people were like, you're going to get grandmas killed. You're going to kill everybody. I was like, I had COVID twice. I'm like, you're not going to die. You know, I still never had it. Yeah. I, so, you know, and it's like, it, it was just all in in this time period. It was like a lot of this chaos going on, and then, uh, you know, I got I had strikes for the BLM thing, strikes for supporting law enforcement, strikes for supporting the military, strikes for. It was just like, and then the then so then it came down. So what what wound up happening is, you know, there was a coup put together to force me to leave the band, and I was willing to. Right, because we negotiated good terms. We didn't ink anything, which was, I made a mistake there. And the initial split was amicable in the way that I was like, look, we're dealing with cancel culture. People are trying to cancel the band as it was expressed to me, which turned out to be not true. And I said, I'm going to leave. And I'm take, you know, we had agreed that I would take all my songs that I did with me. At the time of negotiation, I, I believe the label was under the impression that anyone else in the band had actually contributed to the writing. <laughs> and the reality came to the point where, when I when it was like there was a song, there was a fifty song list that I had recorded. I recorded fifty songs in twenty twenty. I'm, I'm a workaholic, and nobody was in the studio, so I had all the studio time I needed. And um, so I went to work, and then they, and then I did a GoFundMe to pay the studio bill trying to raise 50 grand to get 50 songs and i raised 192 thousand dollars in like 48 hours and the whole industry was like it was the the, the hatred and the resentment. i love that because it's kind of like a but i didn't do it in a malicious way no. i just was like hey like I need I'm money gonna, i'm gonna like if anybody who donates to this whether it's a dollar or ten dollars or a hundred dollars i'm gonna give you an album out of all these songs so people were like, I'll give them a thousand bucks. You know, like Jelly Roll gave me $2,500 and like like a bunch of rappers pop, pop, were like, the system, and like, you know, it was like all Patriots. I think like half of LAPD sponsored it. It was, cra it was crazy. And I was like, oh my God, I think we're going to be okay. And then the whole deal was pulled out from under me and I was told I couldn't have any of my recordings and they were going to do this and do that and do that. And then, you know, ultimately... A 10-month lawsuit ensued. There were some disparaging conversations that happened. And there, you know, and then we settled on terms without going into the lawsuit, which were mutually agreeable. And I was very pleased. And I didn't get to keep all my songs, but I got to keep most of them. And the other ones I sold. And um, just moved them just... Peaced out. But so did did you de have you developed a relationship with Trump from this? Yeah, I mean we so so the TMZ article mm -hmm. was lead singer of Bad Wolf Sue's band and manager for being fired for supporting Trump, which was in part True. the reason. Yeah, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that went everywhere. I'm sure. So I wasn't even trying to have a big public thing. I just wanted what was rightfully mine and the agreement to be upheld, and then it turned into a nightmare. So that went out. TMZ posted it. Trump Jr. posted it. I got like 100,000 followers 
<laughs> like, and it was just like this thing. And then I went out on tour and I sold out my tours with no help, like no nothing. I just went out. I announced I was going out and I went across the whole country the whole summer of 2021. I refused to do mask mandates. I refused to do, I said no to everything. And then I, I videoed, I, I brought a videographer. I did free meet and greet to every show to prove that I wasn't scared of COVID. And I met 500, 600 people a night, took pictures with them, never got sick. And I was like, and as a result, like everything started, the, everything started to open up. So even though everyone hated me, they watched me and then they were like, oh, it's okay now. Nobody wanted to be the first. And I'll never get credit for all the things that I did. You know what I mean? Because I'm the enemy. But, you know, courage is not the answer. Have people that were, like, kind of going at you, have they circled back and kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, either publicly or quietly just been like, hey, man, mostly, I messed up. Mostly on the back end, but a couple, you know, publicly. Like, you know, me and Ivan had very, you know, a falling out. You know, and we had a tumultuous friendship because I think there was a part of him that felt resentful when I filled in for him. And I, and we've reconciled this, and I believe that he at one point felt like I was coming for his job when I literally was in my job. My job was to fill in for him. Was to make sure that the the light stayed on because when you know canceling a show costs hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Yeah, that they're they're at that level. So it's like I just did what. I was hired to do, you know, and like, yeah, now he's my brother and I love him and we're, you know, and that, that was a lot of people, a lot of people in the music industry. I just was at a festival at sick new world in Vegas and I haven't been to a festival. I played one in 2021. Um, but if I haven't been to a show that I wasn't playing since I got canceled and it was, everybody was glad to see me. Like, How did it make you feel? It was great. It's great. Cause I just assumed nobody liked me. So I just keep to myself and you know, me and me and Max went and you know, a couple of our other friends and, um, and you know, I just, everyone, Hey, Hey, you know, and then people were like, bro, you know, like <laughs> the fist sign, like, like power to the people. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, what do you mean? He's like, bro. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Pete, like, I don't want to say people's names, but like, really famous fucking people and i was like where were you three years ago bro you couldn't post one thing you couldn't back me up you know but it's like this is the thing you know it's like the the it's like the meme with the roman emperors where he's slashing the slaves and it's like one guy stands up and then three guys stand up and then everybody stands up so people like i think like you know and this is why i've become friends with people like andy frisella Ian Smith, you know, uh, these, these guys stood up, you know, Sean Whalen, like a lot of people w got real loud. They were like, I'm not doing this, you know, and I was one of them. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's, you know, everyone was, a lot of people were talking about, there was so many weird hokey things going on in 2020 and everyone's like, it's the great awakening and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, to me, the great awakening was realizing everyone realized who was who. Everyone realized who was a sellout. Everyone realized who was a shill. Everyone realized, you know, it was an, it, I mean, it was an, an intelligence test, right? We got, everyone got tested and you saw who your real people were. And I think the beautiful thing out of it is like, 
in my heart, I've, you know, I've, I've forgiven pretty much everybody. I spent months and months every morning praying for all these people and people who I just wanted to mash, you know what I mean? But that doesn't serve me. And all these people I look at, they were victims, you know, of the in-house drive-by, right? The Rage Against the Machine song. It's like you turn on the TV, you turn on your phone, you turn on the computer, and you're just constantly being bombarded Always, yeah. with the, with this no, with this frequency uh, that is it's disharmonious, you know. I mean, we try to get. I mean, through all the the shutdown and everything, it's like we tried to carry on with business, and it was like we still book things, and it was like cancellations, cancellations, this, that, and they're like. Do you guys, I said, we're coming. Like, yeah. it's not up to, if we can get there, we're coming. But it's like we kept getting shut down. So the only, yeah. the only time that's actually that when we started the podcast. Oh, really? <laughs> because we, cause we're like, are we ever going to do this? Are we going to travel again? Because yeah. we were on the road, like, every weekend. Yeah. For years. So I said, you know what? We want to speak to people and be able to communicate. And so we, I said, why don't we do this podcast? Because we don't know if it's ever going to get back, which... I still feel there's a lot of suffering at the expos and yeah. tra like travel. It's kind of like after 9-11 happened, it changed travel forever. This expo and event, it's like people are still, I mean, people are still in masks, right? The only, the only time we really yeah, wore masks, yeah. the only time we really wore them is when we'd get on planes. Mm -hmm. But other than that, like any of the place we'd go to, if they had some mask mandate ahead of time, we just, okay, we'll just wait till you don't have one. But we still would, like, well, still actually, do he wouldn't could. wear a mask. That's a, a difference, I right? I had a couple of, well, like, there was a couple of things. Like, I had, I, I wore a mask in a plane, not in the airport, you know. Um, I wasn't as extreme as some other people. Like, Ian Smith, would he'd bring a bag of almonds, and he would eat one almond for a four-hour flight. <laughs> just absolute just to, protest. Yeah, just to prove, yeah. Yeah, um, um, you know, I had, you know, guys, like, they bought planes. We can't all do that, you know. <laughs> like, you you know. See, why didn't you buy a plane? I was going to fly to Germany. <laughs> Germany locked us out, you know. Oh, oh really? Yeah. yeah, they were the worst. Yeah. Even when we traveled. Yeah. Uh, Them like, in Canada, I think, were really Yeah, like ridiculous. we literally, if you had flew through their air airspace, <laughs> no, you had to wear a mask. We it was went, the weirdest well, thing we ever. We went to Canada. So, so for people that don't know. When you're in Canada and you come back to the United States, you go through U.S. Customs in Canada, not yeah, here. Yeah. So you'll love this story because this was a he got into a big. Fight we, we go to we go through and I said, "Oh, passport." And the day, the two days before we came is when the Supreme Court said no more masks. So we go through, or the federal judge, we go through. We said, "Oh, welcome to the United States." Off comes the mask. So we're going. We're getting ready to get on the plane. The lady's like, "Where's your mask?" I'm like. I don't need it. She's like, well, yeah, you do. I said, am I in the United States? And she's like, yeah. And I said, then I don't need it. And she's like, but you're in Canada. I said, no, I'm not. It says you welcome the United States back there. I don't have to wear the mask. And I looked at the lady. I went, you don't even have a mask on. Why are you telling me to wear one? And then he just walks through. So we go to get on the plane. With no mask. No masks. And everyone has masks on. I'm like, <laughs> Like, we sat there and we like waited because we just got into an argument. And I said, I'm not wearing one. I'm just going on the plane. Yeah. And he was arguing with the woman. I'm like, I'm just leaving because she's not even understanding what real sense is. We're the yeah. only two on the plane with no mask. She and sits I'm like, there and says, yes, we're in the United States. And he's like, well, does this make sense to you? And she's like, um, 
yeah, you're kind of right. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's the thing about when you see how people comply, right? How, how they were able to socially engineer compliance, right? I mean, this is something that, you know, these people were a victim of. And what it is is if you can convince – that's this is what gaslighting does. Like, narcissists gaslight people mm-hmm. because what gaslighting produces is a stripping of your dignity. Now, if I can convince you to do something that you know is nonsense and you comply you lose a little self-respect each time of course so the rules were implication there were psychological implications to create a societal response that was on behalf of those who were in authority like going to a restaurant (laughs) right you have to wear a mask to go inside but when you sit down you're safe from COVID, so you can eat your meal. But if you go to the bathroom, you have to wear a mask because COVID exists. What what is is COVID only live? It's in bathrooms. Yeah, it's five, four feet and up. Is that what it is? Because if that was the case, I would have run around a tricycle for I felt, two years. I felt, I felt I L- I L.A. County myself. was the worst for it, and you were yeah. living in L.A. County, oh, correct? Yeah, it was insane. Yeah. They had, they, that was the rule. Then it was like, wait, you know, let's not for, lest we not forget – Standing six feet apart to get on a plane. <laughs> Socially distancing. <laughs> you sit right next to someone. Yeah. And their knees touching yours. Yeah, and they're like, well, the plane's filtration system like uh, kills the bacteria and virus. I'm like, no such technology exists, ma'am. You know? It was like, man, you know. I got in an argument with someone, and they were telling me about the masks. And I, you know, I mean, usually I just ignore it. I said, can you smell a fart through that? Like, yeah. Oh yeah, I said. So you mean the most deadly virus on earth can't get through this mask, but a fart can, and it went through someone's jeans, and it got to you. Yeah, and they just kind of stare at you. And I said, like, uh, <laughs> that's the fluoride stare. I, I mean, do you look. still feel canceled? I mean, can, I mean, look, the premise of. I, I mean, you just you just talked about the positivity you you're receiving from your peers, right? But well, it's it's like you can you it's cancellation is by the gatekeepers, right? So it's like the unseen. Um, uh, upper like those the people who have the most amount of money control everyone and it's that way in the industry it's completely uh, this it's not a free market anymore so do I feel canceled I don't like there are there are financial effects like I've been put into positions where you know my Instagram was deleted I had 350,000 fans on Instagram can you get back on or no I tried to pay Twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and there's a there's a tag on my account in Metaverse that says "banned for life" from one of the higher ups, which, which I and again I can't say my sources, but it basically means someone very wealthy called someone very important and gave them an ex, a large sum of money to, you know, basically impede me from reaching my audience. Now I understand this. This is I don't feel like this is a personal thing. This is a market issue. Because what happened to me was I wound up um, going from being, you know, I had a, I, yes, I sold a platinum record. I have gold records. I, I was, you know, but I came out in a place and a time where no one was being the voice of the proletariat. No one was speaking on behalf of people's rights. And the fan base and the audience sort of gravitated towards me. And then again, like I had a very good year in 2021. I had out, absolutely outrageous sales numbers and ticket sales 
for a band for an artist that was not being promoted by any of the major companies was not allowed in any of the major venues everything was through social media and so they that had to go because i'm actually controlling the market so i actually had that much impact that they were like this guy has to go we, we can't compete in the marketplace because he's saying these things that everyone wants to you know you have a you had a time where if you if you posted like i don't like this on facebook they give you a strike or they just take your profile down so i was experiencing what everyone was experiencing and i was going on stages and saying it in front of thousands of people so i was i gained favor and you know it's like it's the same thing they you know look this is the thing if i was not if i wasn't an artist and i was a political person they would have killed me right if i was malcolm x or or Martin Luther King Jr. or whatever, they were like, this guy's gone. We got to get rid of him. You know what I mean? But I'm not running for office. So they were just like, we'll just mute him. Did you ever fear that? or No, because I don't fear death. I've already experienced death. I met my creator. I'm, I'm, you know, you know, I was murdered in 2010. My twin brother tried to murder me. So, you know, my experience with that. And How did that happen? He was He was on drugs and he broke into my apartment and I came home like mid home invasion <clears throat> and he wound up hitting me from behind with a crowbar so i got i had a fractured skull on the back and uh, we fought and he broke my forearm and uh and then it beat me to my spleen burst and so you know i got i ran to a neighbor's house collapsed ambulance took me went to the er <clears throat> you know and I, I flatlined in the er eventually i had internal bleeding they didn't realize what was going on and, um, you know, I had, like, a full near-death experience. And, um, yeah, God is real, for sure. I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever people want to call it, there is a there is a, a massive, all-knowing, all-powerful presence of, of consciousness that all everything is derived from, and it's inexplicable. There aren't, it's unfathomable in human English words or emotions to explain how much this entity loves us. Like, it really does. And it, it I think that our souls might all be fragmented pieces of it, or like almost, uh, I, I, I kind of theorize that God actually puts pieces of itself in every person to have uh, like experiences to experience reality in the third dimension. And we're not, we're actually not disconnected. It's, there really is no race. There's no nothing. There's like the human race and the human race is this, these little, we're like these little pieces of light that derive from one central like supercomputer of, of consciousness. And when we are born, we forget. But it was my experience that when I was dead, I was thousands of years old. I mean, I knew, like, I can't remember, I can't bring with sufficient force, you know, the recollection of th these emotions and this knowledge. But I was at peace and I knew everything. And then I went to a place and I'm, you know, I saw people that I knew. I don't know who they were. No one had bodies. We were all made out of light. And they informed me that I had not completed my task. 
And then I, 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 I realized I was like, oh, I didn't do it. I didn't finish. I'm not finished. And then I came back to life. I fell through the atmosphere right in my hospital bed. I was. I watched my body from up above my body, and then I went. And um, that changes you, you know, because most of the things that most of the things that gripped people, the fear that gripped people during COVID was like loss of life and loss of a loved one. And to to, you know, I was sort of changed. And it can never, I can never, like, you can never turn a pickle back into a cucumber. It's too, once you feel that, you can never be regular again. And the only other people, I've talked to a lot of people who have had near-death experiences. Um, the only other people who experience anything remotely close to it is like DMT. You know, and so I definitely don't, you know, I, I, I considered that maybe it was a hallucination, but too many things have happened in my life that are spiritually aligned, and you get these little downloads and messages, and then things start happening, right? So doors in my life, you know, I think karmically, I did a lot of good, and I did, I completely turned my life around, so a lot of doors opened up, and the, the flow of energy was super powerful, and so I was in the situation where you know, I had spent years engaging in, in selfless altruism where I had, I didn't, I, I got to a place where I was like, I don't know what my purpose is. What am I doing? And then I, you know, this was a time after I moved back to LA from New York and I'd survived all that stuff and got an apartment. And I, I failed to do, I tried to start a nonprofit. I failed at that. And I was like, all right, dear God, I'll do anything. And every day I would, or I, did, I didn't even have a bed. I was a mattress on the floor still. And I'm like 30. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where. I've always thought I was supposed to do this music thing, but if that's not it, just show me where I'm supposed to be. And then, you know, I'd go to a meeting. And there was an old guy who was like, could someone help me move a furniture? And I was like... And then, uh, so I helped, you know, this guy, Leroy, <laughs> move furniture. And then I painted houses. And then somebody asked me if I could watch a rehab. And then I got hired by the rehab. And then I started working and living at a facility. And I started taking care of all these men. And I had to, you know, I, I was like the dad, house dad. And, you know, my get my corny ghetto, like, you know, <laughs> these are all very wealthy young kids who are like early 20s and their parents are super rich. I mean, like relatives of like jobs, people like, you know, Silicon Valley money mm -hmm. and celebrities and they think I'm bad and I'm just like, you know, <laughs> like, yo, Tommy's crazy. He died. Like he sold drugs. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay. I'm like, bro, it's not eight mile. bro. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> and then I just, I kept, I did a really good job. I, I just, I really cared. And then my boss, he paid for me to get trained and then certified. And I became a sober coach. And then, uh, you know, I remember one day, like, he's like, yo, we got to, we have a, we have, you got to talk to this kid. I'm like, all right, cool. I was like, where do I got to be? He's like, he's like, listen, don't act weird. I was like, why would I act weird? He's like, I just have to say that. He's like, I can't tell you anything else. Meet me at this address. So I go to this address in Beverly Hills and this guy who's like, I mean, bro, he's like you on your shoulders. I was like, I was like, Jesus Christ. What the, I was like, 
what's up, Lurch? He's yeah. like, are you Tommy Vex? I'm like, yeah. He's like, come this way. He's in a suit. <laughs> we go in this door, elevator. We go up to a penthouse. <clears throat> and my boss is there, and there's a doctor. And he's like, sit down. He's like, he's like, so this guy's going to come in here? He's like, he's real problematic. <laughs> I was like, okay. Oh, he's like, is he a big guy? Because I've had football players and stuff like that. And, he's, and you know. Uh, it's hard to deal with someone who's coming off drugs. And this little guy walks in and he's like, what's up? <laughs> this is Justin Bieber. And I'm like, <laughs> what the? <laughs> and then I, and that was my first ma- huge client. And, ju- you know, like, God bless Justin, man. Like, he's the only person I'll ever say who I worked for. Um, but, man, he turned it around, you know? Are you, you know? close to him still? No, all my clients after we after it's in my contracts we don't we terminate contact. So I haven't seen him in a, in probably like six years. Um, but yeah, he it was it was not good. And now he's like you know he's married. He's he's a man. He has a testimony. He has a story. You know he really uh, his he has a walk with Christ that that was his salvation. And um, you know that's that was one of the greatest privileges of my life is watching people get their lives back right like you know in this situation with ivan i wasn't really the guy i wasn't there to be a sober coach but i was there to as a fire extinguisher and now you know he's opening a rehab he's five years sober he's like a responsible dad he's you know and i'm like yeah and so i had this whole you know and with the energy thing it's like everything was everything was opening and good and good and good and then all this commentary on the internet, it was almost like somebody put a curse on me. And I, it was real weird, like a lot of spiritual darkness started happening. Um, and then ever, and like since I've been going back into a spiritual place, and it almost neutralizes it, right? Because hate can only feed off hate, right? You know, it's like if, if you, if someone's like, you're on Twitter and you're like, you're, all they did, they actually succeeded. They literally brought you down a peg. You know, because you responded. Yeah. Whenever somebody's like you, I'm like, man, I love you. They're like what? You know, I had a guy uh, on Facebook, and he was like, you know, I posted a music video, and this guy was like, look at this guy. He's like, I'd have muscles too if I was all jacked up on steroids. And I was like, hey, man, I was like, that I actually take that as a compliment. <laughs> so thanks. He's like, yeah, you would. I was like, hey, check this out. And I sent him a picture of me when I was 330 pounds. I was like, hey, I was like, listen, man, I want to help you. And I was like, I'm going to, I'll pay for your meal prep for three months. And I want to, I'm going to give you all of my workout plans, everything that I paid for, right? Everything Justin taught me, everything I've learned from Max, or you know what I mean? All the people in my life who are, you know, all the fitness stuff. I'm like, have you, you know, have you heard of 75 hard? He balked me. And that's the thing is like, what when you you know when you what i realize is that when you commit to your shortcomings the grand prizes is, is that you get to keep them and so all these a, a lot of these people who poured a lot of hatred towards me they, it's because i represent something that they can't be or don't want to do the work to be and I need to be in a place of compassion for them. 
you know, or, or some, or I look a certain way or I sound a certain way or I speak in a way that reminds them of someone who hurt them, you know, that too happens. And so if, if we're going to get back on track with society, the division, the dividing line has to get swept because we have to meet back in the middle, being moderate, being sensible, common sense, value, Love you. The thing about love is unconditional love for your fellow man is probably the heart. It will be the hardest thing any man practices. It's almost impossible. You know, like nobody, like Christians say, no one can live a perfect life. Like Jesus, in 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 Christian religion, lived a perfect life, and we and Christians should try to live up to that, right? Whether you believe in Christianity or not, the principles of the spirit of the universe the spirit of the universe that created this entire place for us to be here is not pleased. It does not please it that we should hate each other. It does not please it that we should war with each other. It does not please it that there should be a financial class system. It does, it does not, you know, it, the, the, the entire earth is a, a literal physical manifestation of the infinite abundance and the gifts that we have, as human beings and other organisms on this planet or we've been in like what I mean, dude. Imagine the inher- what inheritance to inherit this place, and then look at what we're doing with it, and look at what we're doing with each other, and I and that's where kind of I am in my my play spiritual life now is to it's time to graduate from this class. It's time to you know look at who I was and ask myself who am I willing to be. So that I could look like that in the spiritual realm. Let, let me, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, of course, to be a spiritual giant. So you you said the music was terrible that you wrote. Yeah, when I was little. Now, tell me, like when you write this music, you said you buried yourself in. You wrote a lot of these verses and everything else. Do you need a specific like pattern to do that? Like, tell me, like it, when you sit down and you write this. Like, is there a place? Is there a kind of headspace you need to be in? Is it morning? Is it night? Is it just, yeah, or just yeah. these thoughts come to mind that, well, like, it depends, right? Like, if I'm ta- if you're talking about a political song, it's 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 more cerebral, you know what I mean? So when you write, like, for example, like if you put a song together with lyrics, is it like a one session of, or is this like thoughts that come through? So you write maybe a quarter of it or a half or how like long does it take to comprise at once? Or? Yeah. Like how does it, t- so, like how do you comprise what lyrics well, match with? Well, sometimes, well, is it a gift? No, no, because it's a, it's like, how do you, how do you become Jay Cutler? <laughs> Practice. Like yeah. you do something. So I, know, I, know, I don't, even, I don't, I don't think about it. That's what yeah. I'm saying. So now I but, have a gift, but I yeah. have, I believe I had a gift, right? When okay. I, when I found the gym, I joined the gym at 18 and, and for the first time in my life, I grew up youngest of seven kids. I was actually really good at something. Mm-hmm. Like that's the one thing that kept me in the gym is I was like, wow, I feel great in here. It wasn't even about, I want to be the biggest guy on the street, right? Or yeah. I want to be the next Stallone or, you know, he was my inspiration, by the way. So we kind of looked at the same people. But nice. I just realized that, like, I can do this. I'm good at it. I get recognition. 
I like the way I'm, it gives me like, I look in the mirror and I'm like, wow, I actually like the way this looks. But it was, it was just like I was really good at it. So, I mean, I, I think that, that it was a calling on your life, right? And so, you know, I think what bodybuilders do to a non, for a non-competitor is you're sh- you actually are showing the physical manifestation of the human will and what the human will is capable. Yeah, because we push ourselves back, you know. I mean, beyond. beyond I yeah. mean, it's it's beyond. It's like I, Sometimes yeah. I think, and I'm like, I, I said this line, and it seems to catch now in today's social media. I said, you have to be a little bit, little bit crazy to do what I do because who wants yeah. to go in the gym and push themselves to a pain zone where you, you're wincing, right? Sure. And you're like, okay, I know this. My body's resisting this, mm-hmm. but, I, but I love it. It yeah. puts me in a realm of like, man, I, I'm a but few that could do this, right? That's the love for the music. It's not necessarily the process of how, I, how you write. If you look at my catalog from start to finish, there's a you know there's a massive evolutionary shift with as with all almost all artists, but the thing the insanity part, the is the inability to reconcile the fact that because I spend all my money on the studio and because I bought all this gear and and I'm like I'm broke and I could barely pay the lights on and like I can't get a girlfriend because I can't afford to take her to dinner. Same thing for bodybuilders. Yeah, it's the same. That's why we get along because. You know, when I went platinum, the headlines would read, you know, Tommy Vex, Bad Wolves, Overnight Sensation, Millions of Records Sold, 27, (laughs) number one in 27 countries. I'm like, I'm 36, bro. 36. Started at 14. And it's last man standing. It is the last man standing. It is, if you, you have to be insane enough or, or you have to love it so unconditionally you know i don't maybe it's not insanity it, maybe, it isn't it, but we're just using that term it's yeah, this yeah. is a broad term okay yeah. so this is well, maybe like, we're the same because society <laughs> thinks insane means really bad right yeah yeah but we're using it as like a but maybe, obsessive uh motivated yeah. everything it's something you love and you'll yes. do whatever you have to do to achieve it yeah but i think but you know i think maybe the problem is just the way that society is is built is that it is not creating champions do you know not many people can focus on that one thing so i'm i'm actually curious how you can sit down and you can like put your head into doing this well so the process changes right so if i'm gonna write a song like remember when I, i it took me about a decade to be able to tell the narrative story about what happened between my brother and i and the truth is is that my my brother was like kind of my so it's, it was like, soup. I, I didn't, I never publicly reconciled that the pain of what he did to me hurt so bad because he was cooler than me and he was, he was tougher than me and he was bigger than me. And like, he did not give a, f- and where I come from, like that was admirable, you know? And like, yeah, but you guys are twins. We're like, yeah, but we just, we're not the same. He's a little nuts. And in the street, that works. Yeah. And you know what I mean? And then, and that's what we look up to. Like, we grew up, idol, you know, when my father, when the bottle took my father, it took the idea of the hard working class man was weak now. And that the gangsters were tough. And, like, why get a regular a working man's a sucker? You know, that Bronx Tale quote? You yep. know what I mean? Bronx Tale. And working then, man's and a sucker, dad. Yeah, yeah. 
but he's also he's like you know that's the whole thing about people people ride the bus and every day they see me and they love me and he's like people people say hi to them because they're afraid of them and that's the difference um fear lasts longer than love well, well that's what they said in the movie yeah that's <laughs> that what line. they say i don't think that's the truth because look you know look at what's I, i'm a perfect example of that it's like you know like love it unconditional love will endure right it's the reason why people get flowers more people get flowers at funerals because regret is stronger than gratitude because people don't practice gratitude if you met you know we're dropping all these jewels but and i'm like getting <laughs> diverted from the from the from the course but i think it's like it starts with a conversation, right? So I sit with a writer, and, I'm, and in this particular song, um, I collaborated with an artist named Drew Folk, and I said, hey, I have a really important song to sing, and I have to say this thing, and I need you to give me a melod like a musical bed for me to really say this thing. And it w the song, the structure of the song, I could send you the demo, it's completely different. The chorus wasn't the chorus, the bridge was the, it like was he all helped switched. put it together. That's what we created. And then I sat with it and I actually, I called Zoltan from five finger death punch. And I was like, Hey man, like, you know, you know, my story, this isn't right, but I think there's something in here. And he was like, Oh, he's like, it's just too slow. And I was like, fuck, that's it. So we sped it up in the computer and then I like took it and cut it and rearranged it. And I was like, oh, there it is. I was like, we got to re-record the whole thing because my voice sounds like a chipmunk. But <laughs> so, And we were on tour. And so I went, I literally called the studio in Stockholm, Sweden. Studio. Went to Purple Skull Studios on the day off. Walked in, sang it in two hours, left. And that song wound up, you know, being oh, third, the third biggest hit of my career. <clears throat> on a different tip, just because I worked in the music industry for a long time. Explain the zombie process of being able to use that record. Because obviously yeah, it was yeah. a Cranberries record. What was the process you had to go through to be able to redo that song? Well, so I was a huge fan of the Cranberries, right? They were like, I, I love that band. And then, you know, the thing about Bad Wolves is it's like, it was, it's not a band. There's like the drummer and me wrote different songs completely separate from each other. And we had a studio guitar player who we would hire and then he would play the guitar parts for drums, dr John's drumming, and I would have fully composed songs. So you're saying it wasn't necessarily a band? No, it was like it was two, two, two se guys. it was two <laughs> separate writing teams, almost like uh, it would be like if Nine Inch Nails had two guys, yeah. and then the other guys were just hired hired guns. And so when we when I sang for Five Finger. Because I was very, because I was so successful, at, you know, they were like, "Who's this guy?" And I was literally just taking these shows and just putting everybody right here, and just crushing it, you know. And that's twenty years of work. So they signed me, and I was in two bands at the time. I was in a metal band called Westville Massacre, and Bad Wolves was a side project. And um, you know, the songs that we had a bunch of metal songs, and they were not suitable for an active rock radio label. And I had recorded the song Zombie in 2016. This is the real story. There was, a, there was a script that I was supposed to read that was like, well, I was, you know, it was like this and that. And in 2016, the song was recorded. And um, Philip Naslin was, my, was, a, was also a sober coach with me. 
That's how we met. He played all, he played all the guitars on it. And I programmed the drums and he played the piano and I sang it. And when we submitted the Bad Wolves record, the label said you don't have any hit songs. This is you got to go back in the studio. And I was like, well, I have song I have songs that I wrote that are you know I I know how to write these kinds of songs and I have a cover song, and maybe they'll like the cover song. So I sent them. They basically were like, let's listen. To, let me hear. So I sent them all everything I had, and those became the singles. And Zombie was one of them, and I was afraid to put it out. And the band, I remember Doc and John were like, we will absolutely not have a cover on this record. And I was like, okay. And I was on tour with Five Finger in England at Wembley Arena, and I met Dan Waite, who was he's the president of the UK office. He's been friends with Dolores for like 17 years. He, and he said, hey, you know, he introduced himself, and we talked about, we actually talk about meditation and spirituality. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm a, I heard the song, the cranberry song. And I, I really think it's great. And, um, I know that, you know, you guys are saying you don't want to put it on, but I, I really think it needs to be on the record. And I was like, well, he was like, well, I'm friends with Dolores. What if I get her to say it's okay? And Which I'll, for people that don't know, it's not an easy thing to get a, no, like a record cleared like that. No, no. And so I was like, well, if she says, if she gives us a thumbs up, then we'll put it out. So it's like right before Christmas, I fly home from Europe. I go to New York. I see my mother. I get a phone call. Dan's got Dolores on the line. Dolores is like, it's killer. Like this. She's like, I want to sing on it. And I'm like, what? I'm like, where? Whatever you want. Like, yeah. Huh? So I call the band. I'm like, guys, like Dolores is singing on Zombie. They're like, shut the up. Like, stop lying. I was like, no, I'm dead serious. They did not believe me. And then in January 7th, well, January 6th, she flew to, to the studio in London. She was supposed to record on the 7th. And uh, tragically, that she passed away. Passed away. Yeah. She had actually drowned in the bath she took a bath and fell asleep so just super and super tragic completely and like just no rhyme no reason and now we're stuck with this record where i had already completed the whole thing and i had re-sang the 2016 to be 2018 and in the anticipation it was going to get on the on the record and then i remember zoe called me and he was like bro put on the tv and the last time he said turn on the tv Chester Bennington was dead. And I was like, oh no, like I, I was, I actually was like, like I, I, to be honest with you, I was like, oh my God, Ivan died. Like I was so afraid to turn the TV on because I was like, oh no, you know? And I turned on the TV and it was Dolores Arena and the Cranberries passes away. I'm like, I just literally got a voice message from her last night. And then it's like, we don't know. We don't know what to do. Like we have a meeting with the like. So then it was like lawyers and this and the other. So that's how the song got cleared because she wanted to sing on it and everything was like greenlit and it was super exciting. And I'm like, yo, like you know, and I'm in this surreal place of like, oh, I just sang for Five Finger. I'm like, I'm doing a song with one of my you know female vocalists. He was like my two favorite alternative female singers was Dolores and Fiona Apple, and I was just like. You know, like, I cried to this stuff. Like, I was like, I'm writing in my, nobody yeah. understands me. You know, I was a weird kid. I'm, like, listening to this satch and then put on Gangster Rap to try to, like, 
Still stop yeah, being yeah. a bitch, you know. That's right. We go do some like that, but that's not that whole thing. The duality, the, the masculine and feminine energy, and uh, yeah, and they and and basically the label was like, we we have to put this song out. He's like, there's gonna be there's gonna be thousands of these songs flooding the, the internet in a week, and he's like, this was the one that she wanted and she chose, and I was like, I'm not comfortable. I don't want any money. And they must have thought I was insane. They're like, what? I was like, yeah. I was like, I, I'm not going to do this for money. So we have to set up a trust fund for our children. And like, you know, all of the all of my publishing proceeds, because they, I again, I had financed and recorded the song, so I owned 100% of the master. So even the, even the guy Philip, who was my partner in playing on it, he got paid a check and signed away. So 100% of the song was mine. And I donated all of that to her kids. And so they were like, you know, I'm, I'm probably sure they were like, this guy's an idiot. Mm -hmm. And again, God, the little voice was like, do the right thing. This is the right thing. Yeah. And then the song wound up, you know, it became a, it, a like, I mean, it was that and, and Old Town Road were the two most highest selling singles of every genre of music in 2018. It was the most insane thing I'd ever witnessed in my entire life. I, you know, I went, I go to the grocery store, like, hey, you know, like, you know, you know how it is, like, when you when you get to the place and then you're like, it's kind of scary because you're like, oh, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. I was like, what if I'm a booger, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my armpits are sweaty, people know who I am now, weird. you know, <laughs> and so just weird like that. It was just, and life changed like that. And then within three days, we're like, you know, flying to Europe. And just, you know, they're like, hey, will you go to Europe and do a press tour? I'm like, What's, what do you mean? Like, yeah, you're going to wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning and sing at radio stations for about 12 hours a day. I'm like, <laughs> let's go. So, you know, wait, you know, you know how it is. You do those long flights and they're like, now you're going to get up and like, you're going to go do this and you're going to go talk to these people and you got to sign this and, you know, and uh, it was a lot. What's the what's the odds that that you do this cover song for one of the most iconic songs of all time, and when it's about to happen, the person passes? Like, what is the like? That's like a one in a trillion. It was meant that song was meant for you to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's the you know, it's like there was a long there was a you know that song had a lot of haunting for multiple reasons there was a point where like i actually like had some feeling of like i shouldn't be feeling good about all the success because a woman has died and i carried that for a few months until i had you know we flew our kids to new york and we did a sold out show in the gramercy theater and before the show you know i got on stage and her two sons and her ex-husband um she has daughters too but they were underage so they have them come and then i handed them a check for a quarter of a million dollars and the two the two the brothers started a business together the girls when they turn um when they turn 18 they have a trust fund they're they're set like they're all, they're good and so that reconciled those that, that for me you know what i mean i was like i did i actually like i and that's the thing Everything in my life that has been given to me is the result of me not 
taking what I didn't deserve and not trying to get and not seeking, you know what I mean? And so, you know, it was a, it was wild. It was a wild, wild thing. And, you know, it was interesting to see this, you know, the switch, right, during 2020, right? Because for years it was, you know, to, you know, then I was named Person of the Year by Rock to Recovery, you know, and then I donated, you know, I think a couple, I think $10,000 to, you know, various rehabs. Then I donated to the police officer who was shot in the Compton shooting, and, and I gave away $50,000, and during COVID, families who were struggling financially, you know, we had like 5,000 people submit things, and some people were like, oh, my neighbor was, was killed in a car accident, he just got home from Afghanistan, and then, so we gave all these people money, and so everybody loved me until I wore a MAGA hat, you know, and then it was like, I had, a, I had an ex-girlfriend come out of the woodwork and was like, oh, you hit me? And I was like, well, no, I didn't. I'm like, I'm 265 pounds. And I'm like, if I hit you, there would be some sort of evidence about this. Like, I haven't seen you in months. You cheated on me. And that became like a whole thing. Then the media jumped on that. They exploited that. And then it was, you know, the, anything they could do, you know, they wanted the, the ex was having financial problems and wanted $100,000 to make it go away. And I beat the, the whole thing in court. So we went to criminal court. Now the idea is like, there's no evidence here. And then I went to, then so, she was like, she got a restraining order against me. And I'm like, I don't want anything to do with you. I was like, you're stalking me. You're the women I date. You're, you know, like I couldn't post who I was seeing anymore. They were getting harassed, getting, they were getting weird phone calls, hanging up, like just all kinds of crazy. And it went on for 10 months. You know, and then even in court, the judge ruled that there was no evidence of domestic violence. But the media never, because I because I put myself in a in a in like in the I put myself on the right side of this massive political divide. No one cared about the truth. They just it was ideological war. So if you everything that you know, I I experienced me too in real time, right? And I was like, yeah, let's go to court then. And I'm like so stupid not realizing that it doesn't matter right the the reason why these things work like marilyn manson's going through this right now the reason why these things were working is because it's the court they're they're basically able to blackmail you because of the court of public opinion and in that time because of the because trump has had so much you know he had so many accusations and all this it became you know the harvey weinstein and i think i think me too was like blm i think that it was a very valiant cause and that it needed to happen because there was a lot of abuse towards women going on in Hollywood for a very, very long time, and it was completely unchecked. But, but just like with BLM, the virtue was replaced by an ability to, call, to scam people for money. And so I fully experienced that. So what? Um, so now, what do you have going on now going forward? Obviously, I've seen your pure blood, blood clothing line and oh, like yeah, your music. Yeah. Like, tell us what you got coming up. So what's going on now? Um, I'm about to go on a press tour. So, you know, we survived all these things and we're back on the radio. We just, we put out, I put out a song called The War You Wanted uh, at Active Rock Radio in the States about seven days ago. It's, or, it's gone up the charts, I think 135 spots already. Uh, this week I'm driving, I'm doing a cross country road trip. I'm heading up Phoenix, El Paso, Austin, Dallas, 
Oklahoma City, Kansas City. Then I'm going to be at Summer Smash with Andy for selling everybody for first form. Up, I'm doing radio press. I'm doing a whole circle around the country, then coming back, then going to San Diego. Then I'm going to go to Peru, and I'm going to do a spiritual healing, you know, everything. I'm going to take the journey to the next level. And uh, and then in September, I'm looking looking to do a headlining U.S. tour. So, yeah, I'm just going to stay busy. Tell us about the clothing line. The clothing line is called Pure Blood. Um, you can figure it out for yourself. <laughs> Where can we buy it? You can buy That's it at, at officialpureblood.com. Okay, so we'll make sure to put that link in the yeah. bottom. <laughs> so, if you, you know, if you... If you felt pressure to do things you didn't want to do and you didn't do them and you stuck by your guns, you're probably a pure blood. But, uh, you know, we are on YouTube, so we're not going to get into the particulars. But, uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's our little club. It's our little, like, yeah, we you made pure, it. We need a pure blood shirt. It's the I survived. I that, yeah. yeah, it's the I survived uh, the, the scam down. We've all, yeah, we've all, we've all survived it. Somewhat. I feel like we're still kind of stuck a little bit, but... I think some the, people are. I think the tide's turning. Look, I, we, I just saw, uh, you know, we saw corn and Deftones and System of a Down on Saturday. There was 80,000 people. I saw, like, three masks. It's over. So I, and this is the thing. Some, you know, some people were, like, hypochondriacs before COVID even was announced. Course, yeah. oh. So now there's just, like, you just are like, oh, when I see someone wearing a mask, I'm like, oh, you, ha- you have, like, a condition. You know, it's not like a thing. Nobody wanted to wear them anyway. You know, it was just like the. It was just a lot of. It was a lot of pressure. Even though the doctors, even though you know Fauci was like, they don't work. And like the, you know, what happened is, is that in the beginning when they needed them for the hospitals, they're like, oh, don't you don't need that. We, they don't work. And then somebody was like, we could just order millions of these from China and force people to wear them and take their money. They were like, you have to wear a mask. It was all, it was, a, it's just sales. These people are snake oil salesmen. They just have massive platforms to do it, you know? I'm going to put a mask on the Jay Cutler face yeah. back here yeah. and promote it. <laughs> nah, we, we don't, we don't have any masks left. No. I, you know what I loved about being in Vegas during that time? You'd go to walk in the casino and they'd be like, where's your mask? I'm like, it's in my truck. And they'd be like, okay, have a nice day. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> just walk in. They didn't, they didn't say nothing. That was like Orange County. I wound up leaving L.A. Like, Tito Ortiz was like, dude, just come down here. He's like, we don't have COVID here. I was like, what? So I went down to UFC gym. I joined. I found uh, my friend had an Airbnb house that nobody would rent. So I just rented it for, like, eight months. (laughs) I was like, I'll just pay you up front, like, eight months rent. I'm like, can I just stay here? She was like, yeah. She's like, oh, this is great. She gave me a super discount. I was like, wake up, walk to the beach, get my tea, (laughs) just Hair salons open, you know, everything's normal. I was like, this is political. <laughs> it's like something's going on here. I was like, all my friends in Florida are outside, and everyone in New York's inside. The only place that I experienced it really bad was Germany. Germany and Italy. Like, in Italy, you had to have this thing downloaded and show you at your, you had to show proof to even walk in a restaurant. Like well, they, they did that in New York, too. Did they? I, I had, yeah, I, I had to get a, like, my, I went to see my mom for Christmas, and I was like, you know, I had to get a card. I, I had a call. I had a, I had a guy. He what are you talking about? He did a lot of that. <laughs> he did a lot of professional athletes. 
not in our industry. In, well, your industry. I, I like how I just associated myself. I'm like, oh, I'm a bodybuilder too. Like, no, you're not fat ass. Shut up. <laughs> you're like, with your 18% body fat. You're, you're, you're a rock star. Yeah. What do you think when someone says he's a rock star? It's weird. It was, it's still weird. You, you know, the whole thing is, is like you, you're in learning so much now. You've helped so many people, right? And, you know, we were talking earlier and you're like, people's reactions different. Mm-hmm. Some people cry. Some people have a really crazy emotions, right? Yeah. For me, I get this also. You know, people come up and they, they get teary-eyed and they tell me about their journey and how they found a place by something I did or an article they read or something I did on social media today that's like life-changing for them. Like that's a gift that you were given and have you accepted that? Cause you started this interview and you were like, I haven't made it. Yeah, no, I, I, but people look at you on a platform of like that level. Right. So like when, when are you going to think differently or is that ever going to happen? I, I don't think I, of myself like that, Tommy. So for yeah, me, I don't think, I, I don't know. Like, uh, like, is there a made it point? Is the journey ever finished? Is the question. I don't know. No, I guess satisfaction is the death of desire, right? So you'll never be sad. I was never yeah. satisfied. This this is arguably the best I ever looked right here. And I still, after this show, said, "How can I be better?" I was number one. But oh. that's how you got to number one, right? Yeah, but I'm still not done. I mean, I'm never satisfied. I never want to stop this journey. I mean, I, I'm still a bodybuilder at heart, right? I mean, but I give so much more now. I feel like I have so much more to give. Um, so do you think there'll ever be a, a point of complete success in your life? I don't, I, I think that, like, I'm not, what I'm not doing is I'm not chasing the dragon's tail anymore, right? I, I don't. You're just rolling with it now? I don't care to be famous. I don't care about adulation I think what I've, I've, I have the respect of respectable people and that's a big deal, right? You know, I go, you know, I, I was at the festival and people were like, Hey man, like, what's up bro? Like, you know, I, I just want to thank you for being the only person that, had, that said something, you know? And I was like, cool. I'm like, you know, but I'll take it. All right. I'll take that. You know, it's like somebody, you know, I've, I've had times where I had a father and his daughter. They broke into the backstage one night, right? We were on tour, Bad Wolves and Papa Roach. And uh, the stage man was like, hey, Tommy. He's like, hey, man. Uh, he's like, bro, this this guy. I'm like, what? What's going? What's the matter? He's like, this guy broke in backstage. I was like, what? It's, so what, right? I was like, who is he? He's like, he's like, he's with his daughter. She tried to commit suicide. I'm like. I'm like, just take take me to them. So I go, I, I just walked off stage. I'm like drenched, soaking wet. I grab a towel. I'm like, hey, what's up? And, you know, like she's has her hospital braces. He he literally went to the hospital and she wanted to see me. And he broke her out of the hospital, and he broke in the backstage of the show. And this man was crying because he was like, I cannot save my daughter. Can you please talk to her? 
And I sat with this girl, with this 13 or 14 year old little girl. And I just listened. And I hung out with them for like 45 minutes. And it was the most important conversation I had, I was going to have in that entire tour. And I don't, I don't, I used to smoke crack and live on a mattress. And I don't know who I think I am. <laughs> that people should come to me and ask me for advice, but somehow God has allowed me to be this person. And I don't deserve it, and I don't, and I'll never be done trying to live up to it. And um, I'm not done. I have a lot. I have a lot to learn. You know, I have, um, and I think everyone is in this place where, like, we have experienced so much hate. The, there can't be. It can't be anymore, right? It can't be. It cannot be. We have to reprioritize human life. We have to reprioritize our value. We have to reprioritize our communities. And we have to reprioritize our country. And and if everyone does that, we'll be okay. And that's, you know, then I'll rest, right? That'll be like when Thanos snaps his finger and gets rid of half of, of creation. Well, I'm like, it's the opposite. I'm like, when, when you know, I'll rest when, when, the, when the battle's over. It's like, I, I want to walk away a lot of times. But I'm like, there's a cultural, spiritual war going on. And, and some, there has to be people like us who are going to say, you know, it's like Andy Frisella talks about. He's like, you know, personal excellence is the, is the ultimate act of defiance. In a system that wants to keep everyone homogenous thinking and slave-minded and not living up to their potential and choosing excuses over discipline and the, and the instant gratification over the long haul uh, we we there will need to be outliers and the outliers will will become the leaders and so if that's what I'm here to do then that's what I'm here to do and if that's not what I'm here to do then the universe will let me know too so I don't know if we'll ever be done and sorry I got emotional it's okay to cry oh. <laughs> I'm wrong with it yeah because that probably changed that girl's life her ch- and her dad you can only hope yeah. you know sometimes people just want someone to just spend a little time, you know, that little bit, just hearing somebody, you know, that does, I mean, that can be anyone. Sometimes you just want to be heard and too many people don't want to, they don't want to listen. They want to traject what they want instead of just, just listen. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things. Well, that's one of the hardest things about being in a relationship is like as a guy, you, you want to fix things. So when your woman comes to you with a problem, Women, that's the other thing too, is like we're in this weird thing where men and women, they, they're, they've they kind of separated everybody and they're like, women are like, well, you don't need no men. And, you know, and men are like, oh, fuck these hoes. And it's like, well, this, you know, this, we need women to teach us. We don't, you know, I learned how to listen from a woman, right? I could easily take someone who has problems and be like, you need to do this and you need to do that. That's not how it works. Sometimes, you know, and in therapy or like, you know, this is why people need mothers and fathers. It's like, because you need the duality. You need both those things. You need, you need to be able to be heard. And then you need the offering of a possible solution that is practical. And, um, yeah, you know, that's men and women need each other. We, we absolutely do. 
And like sure. to continue on thinking that that's not a thing is a false reality. It's not going to, we're all going to end up with cats if we don't fix this nonsense. You know? <laughs> <laughs> cats are okay though. Yeah. like cats, but it's not the same. <laughs> Anything else? No, man, that was really strong. And, um, yeah. you know, we appreciate you coming on and sharing a little time with us. And yeah, uh, it was an honor, bro. You know, normally we ask, uh, you know, everyone to obviously to follow what you do. Okay. So yeah. where are people contacting you most these days? Uh, I mean, my TikTok's kind of blown up. I'm at Tommy is vexed on TikTok. My Instagram, my third Instagram handles, it's Tommy vexed was right. <laughs> and then, yeah. And you can find like, I'm on YouTube. I'm on we'll link everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on Spotify, like streaming, you know, all there's like, I got 20 music videos out. I got three albums I put out in the last year. I'm putting out another song Friday. I'm basically releasing a new song every Friday for the rest of my life. <laughs> and if you guys like this podcast, go buy one of his shirts. Yeah, and you'll you'll be on tour now. You said so. Make sure some of our listeners, viewers, they kind of they'll yeah, be able to hear yeah. some radio, actual live radio. Yeah, if you, if you can also go. You could. What we're also doing is we're asking people to call into their local radio stations okay. and ask them to play the song. So. We're uh, we're we're gonna we're running up the charts, and when I get out of here, I gotta go to another radio thing, and you know, just do all do the whole dance. You know, don't follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> About to delete Twitter. Twitter Twitter is like the lowest spiritual form of social media. It's like it's it's neck and neck at the bottom of Instagram. It's like the two lowest. <laughs> like, if you want to have a bad day, just go on Twitter. I don't think I've posted on Twitter since 2015. I think sometimes my stuff links up to that. But listen, man, we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, we wish you all the best in the future. I'm just I'm really glad we get to catch up. And, uh, you know, once again, thanks. Thank you for having me, bro. Appreciate it.